0: A few years ago, I had a friend who was living in Pennsylvania, and he was marrying a girl from Iowa, and so he was driving across I-70 for what felt like 1,000 miles all the way across, just going and going and going forever, and as he passed through Indianapolis, he called me, and he said, you know, I have loved football, I've watched Colts games, I've watched all kinds of games, but I can't believe how enormous Lucas Oil Stadium is. You're coming through I-70 there, and the bigness of this thing is astounding. And I kept kind of waiting for the next part of the conversation, and all he could do was talk about the bigness of this stadium. I mean, it had just utterly gripped his mind and his imagination. It was all he could talk about. And I kind of stood back and was taken back for a moment because I know Lucas Oil Stadium is big. I see it pretty regularly, and it just doesn't grip my imagination in the same way, right? It's familiarity doesn't necessarily breed contempt of the stadium, but I lose sight of the grandeur of the stadium in some ways. And so I started to do a little bit of digging on it and and looking up some of the statistics behind the stadium. This thing is 270 feet tall. The retractable roof alone weighs more than 5 million pounds, And you could pack nearly 70,000 people into it. It's an impressive structure that we just kind of drive by like, oh yeah, there's Lucas Oil. And when he saw it, he's like, I cannot miss the bigness of this. And if we're honest, the the brick exterior, whether it's real bricks or just the the edifice on the outside, I don't know which it is, but they present a pretty imposing presence, don't they? You drive by, it it just strikes you right in the face. And... I want to ask a question about that exterior, those bricks, assuming they're real bricks for the sake of this question. Do the bricks on Lucas Oil Stadium support the stadium by holding it up, or do they present the stadium in a bold way that you can't miss? Well, it's actually both, right? Yeah, they're holding it up and presenting it in a way that you can't miss. It's, it's a two-fold sort of action there. And 1 Timothy 3 says there's a somewhat similar picture for the church in holding up and supporting the truth and presenting the truth in a clear way that can't be missed. That's our job to do both of those things. And these three verses are are short, maybe the shortest section of Scripture we'll we'll cover in this entire series, but it is action-packed and it is high-octane. Here is the nuclear core of Christianity, What it means to recognize who Jesus is and our role in responding to him. So I want to dive right into it and and see our big idea and then start unpacking it. The, The biggest thing I want you to hear this morning is this. Disciples preserve and present the truth of Jesus. They preserve and present the truth of Jesus. Similar to how those bricks are holding up the stadium and presenting it, that's our role with respect to the truth of who Jesus is. And verse 16 is this old poem, perhaps a hymn of the Christian faith, that talks about the core of Christianity. And that will form our outline. But before I get to chapter, verse 16, I want to walk through verses 14 and 15 really quickly and see how Paul gives some introductory comments there. So look back at 1 Timothy 3.14, see what Paul says. He says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay... Dot, 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 He's simply saying, there is urgency here. I'd like to come tell you in the flesh, but I can't wait for that to happen. You have to know this right now. You'd better focus. This is a serious matter. I've got to tell you right now. It can't wait any longer. Right? You've been on a road trip, perhaps with your children or with a friend who thinks there is an urgent bathroom break coming up, and it's not as urgent as they think it is. They could wait another exit or two. This is urgent. Pay attention. Paul says, this can't wait another exit. You've got to hear it right now. I can't wait till I get there. He continues in verse 15. He says, I hope to come to you soon. uh, Sorry, verse 15. I was reading 14. He says, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul starts by saying, there's urgency here. And then he says, here's your role. You are a pillar and buttress of the truth, a pillar and support of the truth, a pillar and foundation of the truth, you might say. And that word pillar is one that he chose very intentionally, and I think there's a key meaning that the church in Ephesus would have picked up that we might miss. You'll recall Paul's writing to Timothy in the city of Ephesus, and in the city of Ephesus, it's an impressive city. They had one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis. You see an artist rendering of it here up on the screen. You don't see a picture of it on the screen right there. <laughs> so let me describe it for you. It's up on a hill, and there's all these gardens leading their way up to it. And there are 127 marble pillars, each of them 60 feet tall. And before you get to these marble pillars, there's sort of a, a, an outer walkway, foyer-type area, portico, you might say, where it's going up these steps. And then you get to the pillars. And then on top of the pillars, you've got this majestic temple structure. So the whole thing is more than 100 feet tall. And so if you're in the city of Ephesus, you're used to walking by and seeing up on the hill this grand structure, 127 pillars, pure marble, each of them 60 feet tall. And it's as if Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus, do you see how impressive those pillars are in holding up the temple and in presenting the temple in a way that is utterly unmissable? You walk by and you just have to see the temple of Artemis. Like my friend drove by and saw Lucas Oil Stadium. So the visitors to Ephesus walk by and say, oh my goodness, I cannot not look at that building. Those pillars are protecting the building and presenting the building and holding it up. And Paul says, that's your job, church, with respect to the church. Now we don't read it and hear it quite the same way because we're not used to walking by that temple, right? But here they are walking by seeing that temple and says, you're a pillar. They say, oh, I know what pillars are like. I don't know how they work in this area. So that's our role. But we said of the truth of Jesus, what's our message to proclaim? In a very simple way, the playbook for disciples, the simplest play, the one you need to keep running over and over and over is simply this, cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. Verse 16 will elaborate upon that. But the point is Christianity starts with Jesus And it ends with Jesus. It is fueled by Jesus and guided by Jesus. And I can't imagine you're too surprised if you came to church this morning to hear the preacher say that it's all about Jesus. Probably not a shocking message. But what does surprise me, at least in my own life, is how much it's my life. I can find myself going through religious motions and doing Jesus-y kind of things without actually clinging to Jesus. Your life can be filled filled with words about Jesus, slogans from Jesus, actions for Jesus, without clinging to Jesus. And we'd be wise to consider this morning our own souls have moved on from Jesus while our lips still say things about Jesus. Not if we've renounced him per se, but if we've simply gotten bored with him. Not as if we've denied that Lucas Oil Stadium exists, you might say. But as if you can drive on I-70 without it grabbing your attention any longer. Paul would say, you need to preserve this truth of who Jesus is. You need to know Him, you need to study His truth, you need to adore Him, protect that truth, and also present that truth to others. And there are some of you here this morning that you need to grow in the area of preserving the truth of Jesus. Your inclination is to set theology aside, say theology divides, let's focus on what unites. We don't need to argue about these things. And friends, recall what Paul says here, you are called to preserve the truth of Jesus. You have to know it and defend it and protect it. And there's others of you that are more inclined to to read systematic theology texts. And you say, I want to know it, defend it, protect it, but I need to grow in presenting this truth of Jesus to others. It's easy for me to get in the holy huddle with my community group, my Sunday school class and get busy doing things for Jesus and lose sight of those around me who don't yet know him and I'm no longer presenting the truth of Jesus. There was just a few weeks ago, we were out in the the little drive and the kids were riding their bikes around and I looked on on uh, on the road and there was some shattered glass or someone had thrown a bottle or something. And so I went to pick it up and right as I went to pick it up, I'd only picked up a single piece, I didn't have the, the, um, the broom and the pan and all that, and my neighbor pulled in, uh, neighbor Robin, and she looked and she said, well, what are you doing? I said, well, I saw some glass here, and I'm, I'm picking it up, and she said, oh, you don't have to do that. And she pulled in her driveway, went and got her broom, came and got the dustpan, started to fill it all up. Why do I share that? It's basic neighborly concern for her to look out and say, hey, there's danger here for your kids. I'm going to take action, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to engage. Was she busy that night? Did she have people coming over? Were there other stressors on her plate? I really don't know. She didn't tell me. She just said, I recognize danger here, and you need to engage, or I need to engage, rather. And she did that. And I think for some of us, there's a similar principle. We need to recognize the danger that our neighbors are in, engage, and present this truth of Jesus. And we're zooming in here, like I said, for the outline here of verse 16 because it's the core body of truth and there's there's some big words in it and before we get into the big words i'm almost there i promise i'll just encourage you don't be scared away by some of these big words and big ideas my kids went to camp this summer and they came back with first timothy three sixteen memorized it's got a little rhyme to it great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness and they just rattled the whole thing off and i thought Man, there's some big words. Our kids can do this. So adults, don't check out. And as you work with kids, don't dumb it down and pretend they can't handle big words and big ideas about God either. Let's go back and read verse 16 together. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. At the core of Christianity, we find a mystery. A great mystery, actually, is what the text says. And we know that mysteries draw us in, don't they? There's a reason there's so many episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. There's a reason there's so many titles in the Nancy Drew Mystery Series. Right? Mysteries draw us in. And this mystery is this. How can God become like us? And how can we become like God? It is a great mystery. I love how the NIV says this. I think it's on the screen. It says this, Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. The mystery from which godliness springs is great. Where does godliness come from? From going deeper into the mystery of Jesus. Friends, do you love going deeper into the mystery of Jesus? His life and work is simple enough that a five-year-old can understand it. And there's enough, enough depth and beauty that no PhD will ever plumb the depths of it. Jesus is eternally and infinitely interesting. Do you love to go deeper into that mystery? You'll find doctrinal truths to engage your brain. You'll find devotional truths to warm your heart. You'll find discipleship truths to inform all of your life. All in the mystery of Jesus. And so this poem, this hymn has six short stanzas. And what I want to do is I want to summarize each stanza in a single word. And I'll move quickly through them, but there will be a six-word outline, one word for each stanza. The first one, we'll dive right in then, is this, incarnation, incarnation. Verse 16, it begins, he was manifested in the flesh. It was manifested in the flesh. Now, incarnation, you might say, is a $2.50 term. Perhaps you've heard it if you've been around theology, but it's not one we frequently use in daily life. It simply means this, if you're taking notes, in bodily form, or perhaps in human form, you might say. It's a core truth of Christianity. You see it taught all over the Bible. For example, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Colossians 2.9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Coming up in January in our Bible Institute, we'll go through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John where there are major themes of the incarnation of Jesus. I'd invite you to sign up for that as we explore this deep truth and mystery of who Jesus is. But it's not something that we're just doing recently This has been a core and key teaching of the church for the whole history of the church. Since Jesus was here, you can go back to the Council of Chalcedon back in AD 451 where they were clarifying this teaching and making it precise. Here's what that creed says. Our Lord Jesus Christ is both complete in divinity and complete in humanity, truly God and truly man. He's eternally God. He was never created, yet came as a man. He never sinned, yet somehow knew human weakness. And the fact of the matter is, if you don't affirm this core doctrine, you're not a Christian. This is essential Christian belief. This is a closed-fisted issue. There's no flexibility on this one. Christians, you are called to protect and preserve and proclaim this truth. That also means that if Jesus was really God and really became man, then most of the world religions you can set aside. You could set aside certainly atheism or agnosticism. You could set aside Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam. All told, more than 5 billion people among those collective belief systems And if you're here and you don't yet think that's true, I want you to understand that I'm not assuming that Jesus was fully God, fully man. There's good reasons for that. And in the next point, I'll say more about it, so just stick with me for a moment. But to the Christians, I want to talk to you just for a moment right now to recognize that Jesus was fully God, fully man. Their doctrine of the incarnation is not merely a doctrinal truth for you to preserve. Yes, it is that, but it's very practical. It is a devotional truth that will warm your heart. It's a devotional truth to present to yourself and to others that the God of the universe who created distant galaxies and the tiniest subatomic particles, who by hand fashioned the bottom floor of the ocean, the highest peaks of the mountains, and every glorious waterfall, that God also walked the earth. He came near. He ate bread and drank water. He got thirsty. And that's as if in the incarnation, he's saying to each of us, I'm not playing a big game of catch me if you can. I'm not saying work as hard as you can to get to me. I'm at the top of the mountain. Let's see what kind of mountain climbing skills you have. Get to work. He says, no, I recognize you'd never get to me, so I came near to you. And when he came, he experienced the loss of loved ones. He experienced family betrayal. He experienced false accusations, homelessness, immense physical suffering, intense mental and spiritual anguish an intensity of temptation that we do not know so that, so that he went through all of that so that he could look you in the eye and say, friend, I understand. I can sympathize with you in your weakness. Maybe nobody else in your life gets it like I do, but Jesus does. You see, the doctrine of the incarnation is not just a doctrinal truth to preserve but a devotional truth to warm your heart as well. This is what Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 come along and say very clearly. And if you're wondering this morning, if anybody understands, and if Jesus is really with you in this difficult season, friend, know on the basis of the doctrine of the incarnation that God became flesh and dwelt among us, that he does understand, and he's with you, and he's promised he'll never leave you, and he'll never forsake you. Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 4, I'm going to encourage you to just jot down and go back and read this afternoon as an encouragement to your heart of what this doctrine teaches us. And yet, there was one aspect of our weakness that Jesus didn't live in. It's actually our greatest weakness that we're sinful beings. He wasn't a sinner, He came and lived the perfect life that we didn't live. And took on the death that our sins deserved, so that we could have our sins forgiven and be made right with God. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 21 states it so clearly, so succinctly, it says this, "For our sake, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God." Friends, that's the core of the gospel. God came to be like us. He took on our sin. Although he knew no sin, so that all who would trust in him, repentance and faith could have the righteousness of God and not just have it become the righteousness of God. It's like C.S. Lewis said, the Son of God became a man so that men could become sons of God. Or if you want to look back at what we just sang in the glorious truth, come behold the wondrous mystery, he, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Praise God for the incarnation. Second stanza, confirmation. He was manifested in the flesh, verse 16. What comes next? He was vindicated by the Spirit. To vindicate means to show or to prove to be right. It's a confirmation that he is who he said he was. Maybe you remember that old uh, football commercial, Denny Green? They were who we thought they were. Well, the Holy Spirit says he is who he said he was. The Holy Spirit confirms his claims. And you often need confirmation when a claim is disputed or it's not clear if it was true. You'll recall in Jesus' day, the original audience said, he can't be the guy, he's just a carpenter from Nazareth. And thus at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and you hear the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well, please listen to him. Confirmation. And the original audience saw Jesus on the cross knowing that anyone who would be crucified on a wooden cross would be cursed. Galatians 3, 13, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. They said, he can't be the Messiah, he must be the cursed one. And they missed the core truth that he went to the cross, not as a curse himself, but to bear our curse. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins on the tree. So that we might Die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. They missed that point. In essence, here's what the, the original audience said. We're the good guys setting ourselves up as the judge to judge whether Jesus is actually true. Can't be the guy, he's from Messiah, can't be the, or he's from Nazareth, can't be the guy, he was crucified on a tree, all of that sort of thing, right? We're the ones placing ourselves in the seat of the judge to render a judgment about him. And that principle is precisely what the modern man does. They set themselves up as the judge to say, well, if anyone says anything about sexual restraint like Jesus did, then we judge that to be repressive and dangerous. It must be dealt with. We've set ourselves up as the judge. The modern man says, well, any teaching that says, do not be true to yourself, Any teaching that says, take up your cross and follow me, is cruel and hateful. The thing you must do above all else is be true to yourself. The modern man says, if anyone teaches that women should submit to men in the home and in the church, well, that's patriarchal, that's abusive. It's us setting ourselves up as the judge to say, is Jesus true or is he not? It's The same underlying principle. And the question then, of course, is, well, how do I know who's right? Because these claims cannot both be true. They are mutually exclusive. And it's not simply a matter of which of them sounds better to me, which of them I find more appealing. You know, because if Jesus were just another random teacher, another Joe Rogan, another Whoopi Goldberg, another whomever, you simply say, well, then I'll take the parts I like and I'll leave out the parts I don't and we'll just go on in our merry way. but that's not who Jesus said he was. If he was actually God, then we'd better listen to him. You see, the question isn't, do I like what Jesus says? That's not the question. You shouldn't ask that. You should ask, is this actually God saying this? Because if it's actually God saying it, then my feelings about the truth are not that significant. And if it's not God saying it, it's just another random guy, then I don't need to waste my time on it. Right, the question is, is he actually God? And 1 Timothy 3.16 says he was vindicated by the Spirit. He was confirmed by the Spirit. He was proven to be true and God by the Spirit. the question then is, how? How does the Spirit vindicate and confirm his claims? And it's at his resurrection. Because we know that one thing about dead men they stay dead. But he's not just a man, he is God. And so he rose from the grave. Romans 1.4 says it in a, a very clear way. It says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. He was vindicated in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what it means that he was vindicated, that he was confirmed. It means that Jesus really came as a human and really died on the cross to pay for our sins and really rose again so that you could have the hope of eternal life. And maybe you don't believe that yet. And I said I would come to this a bit in the second point. You're skeptical of these claims. You say, Justin, I mean, you're really saying a guy 2,000 years ago lived, died, went in the grave, and then walked back out of it after being dead for three days. And if you're asking that, let me first say, I am so glad that you're here. I'm so glad you're engaging on these questions, and I would love to find a time we could sit down and talk about it. Maybe you found pastors at some point who don't want to engage your questions. I'd love to sit and talk about it. I hope you'll stop by after the service, and we can find a time. But until then, let me give you two data points, two things I want you to consider about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. If we're to deny it, we have to account for, number one, The eyewitnesses who saw Jesus, who were not Christians before they saw him, and when they saw him, converted and said, I saw you alive and I saw you dead, and now I see you alive. You must be the Christ. This was Paul, who hated Christians, gave his life to killing them. He saw the resurrected Christ and was immediately converted. It was also Jesus' brother, James, who thought Jesus was outside his mind. He was crazy. He was uh, not a believer. He saw the resurrected Christ, became converted, and was one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. That's the first data point you need to consider. The confirmation bias is not an issue because these guys weren't believers. They saw Jesus and, wrote, and they then believed. Second data point, the rapid rise of the Christian church. You must account for that, because what we know about most developing worldviews, most developing philosophies, is it usually takes centuries for this idea to come to fruition and to become widespread. And yet, in this scenario, we see in a very short period of time, a matter of months to years, this radical new truth, not Judaism, a brand new thing called Christianity that the Messiah has come spreading throughout the whole Roman Empire. And we've never in the history of the world seen a religion or a world you spread with that degree of rapidity. And if you're interested in digging in more, N.T. Wright wrote an excellent book called The Resurrection of the Son of God where he spends 700 pages exploring just the second data point. It's a deep dive. But if you want to dig on it, I want you to go there and I'd be glad to read it with you. The Holy Spirit confirms and vindicates Jesus as the Son of God. Third stanza, presentation. He was seen by angels. He was seen by angels. Yes, angels were a common part of Jesus' life. We know they sang at his birth. They ministered to him in the desert. They strengthened him in the Garden of Gethsemane while he's praying through the night. But how were the angels involved post-resurrection? We know that Jesus presented himself to them. That's how they saw him. He went and presented himself. First Peter 3 says that Jesus went to the fallen angels after his crucifixion and gave the greatest victory speech of all time. He went and said, there's been a cosmic battle, and I won. I am the Christ. I am risen from the dead, and now you see me. Matthew 28 tells us that the angels first delivered the message of the resurrected Jesus to the disciples. Well, how did the angels know Jesus presented himself to them? Acts chapter 1, we see the angels are present at Jesus' ascension as he goes up to heaven. And the reason this phrase is in this section, that he was seen by angels, is to communicate this. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Risen from the dead is known on the earth and in all the heavens. Seen by men, seen by angels, there's no part of this universe where Jesus doesn't say, That is mine. I rule over it all, and my kingship is known by all. He would say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Everybody knows I am the truth. I read not too long ago about a a White House scandal. And there was a a reporter who was asking somebody representative from the White House said, Well, what's the truth in this matter? And the representative from the White House spokesperson said, Well, the, the truth is what's in that deposition. Unless we make a deal with the prosecutors and say something else. Friends, the truth of Jesus is not malleable and it's not open to you making a deal with the prosecutor and trying to change your deposition. It's fixed. He is the king, and we must respond to it. So the question isn't if he's the king, but how you will respond to his kingship. That word angels there, you see that in verse 16, the third stanza? The Greek word simply means messengers, seen by messengers. And most commentators think it certainly means angels and might also mean the apostles, Jesus showed himself to the messengers who would go out and proclaim who he is. Probably a dual meaning intended there, which would explain the fourth stanza, which brings us to our fourth word, proclamation. What you see, you must go and tell. He was proclaimed among the nations. Acts 1.8, some of Jesus' final words on the earth. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, he says. You think about the the historical timeline here, from Jesus' death to the writing of this letter is around 30 years. 30 years have elapsed since Jesus rose from the dead, and now this hymn is being written by Paul. The city of Ephesus is around 1,100 miles from Jerusalem, just over 1,000 miles. If you're trying to get a reference point, that's from here to Miami, a long way to go, and yet the gospel has spread. And it's as if Paul's strategy is, I'm going to go proclaim the gospel. I'm going to go to the most influential cities in the entire universe. I'm going to proclaim the gospel there. People will be saved. I'll organize the converts into disciples as the Lord has commanded, and from there, send them out. That's his strategy. Now, here's the thing I'm not asking you to do when we say proclamation, that fourth word, I'm not asking you to walk to Miami. If you want to, go for it. It might be nice. By the time you get there, it'll be warmer there than here. Guys, I'm asking you to walk across the street and proclaim the truth of Jesus to your neighbor. I'm asking you to be bold in proclaiming the truth of Jesus this Thanksgiving when you gather with family. I'm asking you to look across the hallway at your place of employment and recognize there are people who don't know Jesus, and the call on your life is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. You might say, what'd you do this weekend? And they tell you what they did this weekend. What'd you do this weekend? Well, our pastor was talking about mysteries. He said that Jesus is mysterious. Have you ever thought about what you believe about him? Direct question. Direct question. An important matter it must be resolved. And Jesus' life and ministry must shape and inform how we think about proclamation. Certainly, He gave clear proclamation of the good news from the standpoint of full incarnation. He came close. Right? So, we're also going to go close to those in our lives with a clear proclamation of who He is. And if I could give a, a question for you to think on and begin to ponder. What's your three-year plan for your unsaved neighbor to become a community group leader? What's that going to look like? What are the steps that need to take place? What are the questions you need to ask? What are the invitations you need to make? He said, Justin, I've never thought about it that way. Well, doesn't the Great Commission say, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, that they grow as disciples as well. What's your three-year plan to see your unsaved neighbor come to Christ, grow in their faith, and start leading the church and being part of this mission of sending others out? It'd be a great thing for you to ponder over lunch today. We know that Jesus told his disciples, I will make you fishers of men, Right? That was their occupation, so I'm going to turn it around, we'll play on words here, and it's as if he says to the pharmacists in the room, I'll give you a soul-healing medicine to deliver, not just a body-healing medicine to deliver, as if he says to the computer programmers, I will give you a code that rewires the human heart. It's like he says to the engineers, I'll commission you out with a solution that's way better than the solution you have to fix jet engines. He says to the electricians, I'll send you out with a light far brighter than any LED bulb you've got. And you begin to see all of life through this lens of proclamation of the good news that Jesus is the Christ. But it must be proclaimed. Proclaimed. Romans 10, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, and we know the greatest missionary movement in the world, recorded in Acts chapter 8, went as regular Joe Christians went out proclaiming the gospel on their way. Acts 8 says the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, and the church scattered, and regular Christians were the ones leading the charge proclaiming to whomever God put in their life same is true or should be true for us today. We say Parkside functions like an aircraft carrier. We come together on Sunday. We receive fuel for the journey. We receive ammo for our journey, for our mission, and we receive healing from injuries we've incurred when we come together, and then we are launched back out as fighter jets. May it ever be true of us. That brings us to our fifth stanza, affirmation. He was believed on in the world. You see, to affirm the gospel, to affirm the gospel is to believe it, to commit your life to it, and to be radically changed. What I'm saying by that is knowing facts and agreeing to facts simply isn't enough. Because demons know facts about Jesus. They agree to facts about Jesus. But they don't place their trust in those facts about Jesus. See, Christian, idea, or Christian faith has this idea of trust where there's no middle ground. I look at this stool over here. I could grab this, hold it up, and I could tell you facts about it. I could persuade you of facts about it. We could know all this. But I'm not trusting in this stool until I set it down and put all my weight on it. At that point, I've demonstrated faith. I've affirmed this stool is strong enough to hold me up. Now, I can stand here and say, oh, yeah, I affirm this thing will hold me up. That's not Christian faith. You've got to commit yourself to it. Place your trust in it. Give yourself to Jesus and follow him. He was believed on by the nations. And where the message of the gospel is proclaimed, stanza four, stanza five, it will be believed. And you read about it in the New Testament. This gospel is spreading like wildfires. Like, this is amazing. I want to see this stuff happen, right? Right? And in our world, we sometimes hear these these terms tossed out of post-Christian, post-truth, post-post-post-post-post. Everything's post-post-everything. You don't even know what it means, but we begin, I think, to hear the state of our world and lose confidence in the proclamation of the gospel as if it's not the same God working today that was working back then. And it's at this point that the doctrines of predestination and election give great fuel to your evangelistic work, to proclaiming the gospel. Because if it's riding on my clarity and explanation, my winsomeness and persuasiveness, if it depends on me, then that's a heavy load to carry. But God says, I will work. I will save my people. John chapter 6, Jesus said it this way. He said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John 10, verse 27, we read, My sheep hear my voice when the gospel is proclaimed, and I know them, and they follow me. Maybe the most interesting one of the whole batch here is Acts chapter 18. Acts 18, Paul's facing persecution. He's considering leaving the city he's in. His life is in danger and listen to what God says. As the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, "Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I'm with you. And no one will attack you to harm you." Catch this, "For I have many in this city who are my people." It's Paul, I'm going to work. I'm going to work through the proclamation of the gospel. And because I've chosen some to be saved, that absolutely fuels your evangelism, Paul. And it's the same for us today. Friends, proclamation and affirmation are a mystery and they go hand in hand. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are a mystery and they go hand in hand. But we know that God is creating and establishing a people for himself from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. It will happen. God will bring it to pass. And the question for us is, will you be seeing that as a participant on the inside or a casual observer on the outside? Final stands, a final word, Glorification glorification last stanza of that verse he says he was taken up in glory he's been manifested in the flesh vindicated by the spirit presented seen by the angels proclaimed to the world believed on by the nations and now taken up in glory where he now has the name above every name where he rules above every ruler where he's seated above every seat at the right hand of the throne of god where sinners once cursed him on the cross now all heaven is roaring his praises And where sinners today will curse his name and his teaching, we recognize that for his followers, glory awaits. It's the hope of glory. It's Romans chapter 6. We read the following. If we've been united with him in his death, we'll certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You die to Christ, you will be raised with Christ. And from this truth flows the mystery of godliness. He was made like us so that we could be made like him. It's come full circle, incarnation, all the way through to glorification. So what that means, friends, is that this life, what we have right here, is preparing us for our real life, our true life in glory. It means that our life on this earth, our 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 years, is like the first sentence in the preface of a 12-volume set. There's so much more to come. And it's far glorious than we could ever imagine. In Romans, 9, or Romans 19, Revelation 19, Paul describes it. Or Paul, well, I'm, I'm excited to tell you this. I promise I am. I'm just stumbling on my words here. In Revelation 19... We read of this marriage supper of the Lamb to explain how glorious this will be. And I wonder in your mind's eye if you couldn't just imagine a wedding feast that you've been to, where all your best friends are there. The place is just bubbling over with relational joy. You're so happy to see everyone. You wish you had six months to stay there to see everyone. It's so exciting. There's live music that's incredible. There's dancing, and at this one, you can actually dance. There's premium steaks. There's high-end wine. There's joy for days, and weeks, and months, forever. It's glorious. That's what's coming. That's what's coming. That's what we look forward to. And just imagine you had a friend who was invited to that party, and they'd lost the invitation, would you not say, hey, I want you to be there. Come with me. Of course you would. Of course you would. And this is God's chosen image for the glorification that awaits to all who are in Christ. It promotes worship of who he is and wonder at what he's done. It highlights doctrinal truths of who he is and devotion from the depth of our heart. And it doesn't just do that, it compels beliefs and behavior where I go and live in light of it. Friends, if today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't do it. Don't put obedience on the back burner. Don't delay. Follow after him. Go and preserve the mystery of Jesus. Go and present the mystery of Jesus and look forward to glory together. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess great is the mystery of godliness. You are amazing. You became like us so that we could become like you. And it is too much for us to wrap our minds around and to grasp, but we are so grateful for your finished work on the cross, your resurrection from the dead, your ascension to glory, and your invitation for us to come in your stead be like you, and one day join you there. Lord, we pray that we would be gripped by your greatness. We wouldn't just drive by and see what we've seen before and say, oh yeah, I know that. But we had a fresh vision, Jesus, of who you are. We pray these things. In the strong name of the crucified, risen, ascended Son of God, amen.